Uh, we've been looking over the last uh, couple weeks on Bible Studies of the Rust, looking at the series Haunted. And today we'll be looking at the third lesson in this series, looking at Haunted by Doubt. Uh, I originally did these lessons as sermons here at Ulaga. Oh, it's been a little while, but uh, I just thought they would be good study material for us uh, each week. If you look at Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 25, the Bible says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered and answered him and said, Lord, if it, if it be thou, bid, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou little faith, where didst thou doubt? Or as the New King James says, why did you doubt? We think about how there are different reasons and events that take place in, in our lives sometimes that can cause us to doubt if we're not careful. There are different things in the life of a person that, uh, that may generate doubt. And we're going to look at a few of these things that someone, for different reasons, may find themselves doubting. And the first one we will notice here is the doubt in the power of the gospel. Now, I do believe that there are some today who, who maybe unknowingly, but they do doubt the power of the gospel. Many not, may not say this in their words, but their actions sometimes may say that they do doubt the power of the gospel. But the gospel does, as we should remember and be mindful of always, it does have the power to convict people of sin. If you look at Titus chapter 1, in Titus chapter 1 and looking here at verse 9, the Bible says, Holding fast a faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayer or gainsayers. And so we find here it is the gospel that convicts people. And if we're not careful, sometimes we, we put too much emphasis on the person who is speaking and forget that they're not the ones who's convicting people of sin, but it's actually the Bible. It's the gospel that does so. The gospel, the true gospel, can and does convict people. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, looking here in verse 12, uh, yeah, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, here we have these words, For the word of God is quick and powerful, quick and powerful, and is, and is, and is uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, division of, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marl, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we are reminded here in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, that the power of the gospel, the true gospel, does and can convict people. He said here, it's the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not the words of men. It's not the words of some uh, very uh, eloquent speaker. No, it's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the word that is quick. It's the word that is powerful. It is the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
We also reminded of this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and looking at verse 21, here the Bible says, For after that in the wisdom of God the world may... The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You think about that phrase, that may sound confusing to some, the foolishness of preaching. It's not foolishness in the sense that God thinks it's foolishness, or foolishness in the sense that the Christians should think it's foolishness, but it's foolish to the world. The idea of preaching the gospel, the message of preaching, they say, is foolishness. He says here in verse 21, Please God by the foolishness of preaching to do what? To save them that believe. To save them who come to that belief, that obedient belief in God. And so it is by this foolishness that the world sometimes calls it. But the foolishness is not uh, the preaching or teaching. The foolishness in reality is those is in those the heart of those who desire who do not desire to obey the gospel. We find that... While some doubt the power of the gospel, we have to remember that the gospel has power to convict people of sin. And it also has the power to reach anyone. You know, we think about, sometimes we think, well, this individual, man, they're, they're so wicked. I don't, know, I don't know what we can do. Well, the Bible, the gospel is what does the work, not man. We are simply those who, who, re, who relay, you might say, that message. If you look at Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, and looking here at verses uh, 13 through 16, in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 13, he says, For ye have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, or, as the New King James says, and tried to destroy it. Keep in mind what happened to Saul. He became Paul, but only after his conversion. This man was one, as he points out here, how he persecuted the church beyond measure. And he did what? He says he tried to destroy it, or he tried to, the Bible says here, and wasted it. In verse 14 here in Galatians 1 says, And profited the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And we find here as we look at Galatians 1, 13-16, here the Apostle Paul is recounting his conversion. And one of the first things he mentioned is that how wicked he was in the past, but we, we also notice that there's this stark change, right? He says in verse 14 how he profited in the Jews' religion above many, he says, my equals in my own nation, which means he, he was far more advanced and knowledgeable and zealous, you might say, than all those other friends of his who were in the Jewish nation, as he refers to them, or the Jewish religion. He says he is more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. It is by the grace of God that the apostle that, that Saul, rather, met Christ on the road to Damascus and was able to come to that knowledge of him. And by him obeying the truth, later when Ananias came to him, he obeyed the gospel. And it was by the grace of God that that opportunity, that occasion, came to him. And, but it was by Saul's open heart that, that he was allowed to be changed by the gospel. A man so wicked who watched so many uh, be carried off into prison, and others be killed because they were claiming that Christ was the Son of God. 
And now, what was it? Well, he's now claiming the very same thing. And what reached him, the gospel did. The power of God is in the gospel. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and looking here at verse 18, the Bible says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Here again we find this idea. And he says here in verse 18, But unto us which are saved is the power of God. Meaning to us who are listening and wanting to obey, he says it's the power of God. Those who are being saved, they recognize it as the power of God. And so we shouldn't be those who doubt the power of the gospel, who doubt the power of God's word. We also have to think about how sometimes we're not careful, depending on our situation sometimes, we begin to have doubt in God's love. You know, God's love provides a path to salvation. God provides a path to salvation, as we were reminded in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, and looking at verse 21. In James 1 and verse 21 says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. What is it, he says here, is able to save your souls? It's the gospel here in James chapter 1 and verse uh, in verse 21. Well, God's God's love leads man to salvation, doesn't it? It is God's love for man that shows him the pathway to heaven. Now, if God doesn't didn't love man, he wouldn't send his, send his son to the earth. If God didn't love man, he wouldn't ensure that his word endured for thousands and thousands of years. No, instead we find that God's word still guides us to salvation and encourages us to depart from all filthiness and naughtiness. And to receive with meekness the engrafted word, which he says is able to save our souls. Also notice with me Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Uh, Psalm 16. And looking here at uh, verse 11. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, Thou wilt shew me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At the right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So you will show me the path of life. In your presence is what? The fullness of joy. You know, God provides a pathway to salvation because he loves us. And we find here that in his presence is joy and happiness. Why is that there? Because God loves us. God doesn't make it where we approach him grudgingly, or we shouldn't. But we find instead peace and love in the presence of God. We also reminded that man's path leads in the opposite direction. If you look at Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, and looking at verses 14 through 17, remembering that God's love is what leads us to salvation. It shows us the pathway to salvation. In Proverbs chapter 4, looking at verse 14 and following, the Bible says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not except they except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. We find here that man's path leads in this wrong direction. He says in verse 16, they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall, meaning they don't rest until they've done evil. That's the pathway of men. That's the pathway of the world. If you don't believe that, uh, sometimes we need to remind those individuals or 
consider rather those individuals who on a Friday evening are seeking out only they're only seeking out the party scene, seeking out uh, worldly pleasures and uh, and way to ways to graf, gratify their flesh. Well, that's the way of the world. It's not the way of the godly. It's not the way that God has shown us. So God's love leads or provides her the path to sin. God's love does not grant, or excuse me, God's love provides a path to salvation. Rather, it is not God's love does not grant us automatic salvation, but shows us the pathway to salvation. There is a difference, and God's love also provides the Christian with eternal rest. If you look at Revelation chapter fourteen, Revelation chapter fourteen. Not revelations, but revelation. Revelation 14 and verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Notice what he says here. Blessed are they are the dead which die in the Lord. Why are they blessed? Because they get to have heaven as their home. They get to be those who enjoy that, that true rest. Because why? They are in the Lord. Blessed are, are the dead which die in the Lord, meaning those who die while they're being faithful to God. You know, you can't have true rest for all eternity if you die in a state where you're not in the Lord. Notice also here that God's love not only provides the Christian with eternal rest, it also realized that had to realize that place that's prepared for us is prepared by God specifically for the faithful. If you look at John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, looking at verses 1 through 4, remembering that God's love is the reason why these things are available to us. It's because of God's love that heaven is a place waiting for us. It's because of God's love that we have that pathway to salvation. And we were reminded here in John 14, in verses 1 through 4, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. But were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I, I go, ye know, and the way ye know. We find there in John chapter 14, 1 through 4, that Christ tells us not to be troubled, not to doubt, right? But to take heart in, that, in the fact that, as he points out in verse 2, that in his Father's house are many mansions, and that where he is going, he's going to prepare a place for us. Why? Verse 4, or verse 3, rather, and prepare a pl- and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye, ye may be also. See, we should be finding encouragement and not doubt, finding encouragement that there's a place prepared spe- uh, specifically for the faithful. That should be an encouragement to us, and let us not doubt. If we're honest so many times, doubt comes because of difficult times, and we get lazy and we forget some of the promises of God. And our final main point this uh, uh, today is doubt. There are those who doubt in God's wrath. And I also have this out next to it. Don't get too comfortable. You know, sometimes today people live as if they feel like, well, God's wrath isn't coming. His judgment, judgment day isn't coming, so I'll just live however I want. God's love does not tolerate sin. Sin must be repented of. God's love, God loves righteousness and not sin. If you look at Second Peter chapter three, in Second Peter chapter three, and looking at 
Verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we find here that God loves what? He does not love sin. No, he loves righteousness. And we should as well. You know, we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. God hates wickedness in all its forms, and we should hate it as well. And if we find ourselves swept up in those things, we stumble in God's word. Well, we we are those who are able to repent of our sins. If we are a Christian, we confess those things to God. The Bible tells us there that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 and verse 9. So long as we repent of those things. If we're not a Christian, how do we take care of that? We obey the gospel. That's how we take care of that problem. Just because God's, God loves man, however, does not mean he will or does not overlook sin. If you look at Psalm 11, Psalm 11, and looking here at verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Uh, his soul hates. What does he hate? He hates the wicked. You think about this, you have to put it in careful this context. He's not saying he hates the actual person, but he hates their wicked deeds, right? He hates the wicked because they're wicked, not because of who they are in the sense of where they're from or where they grew up or anything like that. He hates the wicked because they're wicked. But if they were righteous, if they would do that which is good and pleasing, when he says there in verse 5, the Lord trieth the righteous, which means the Lord tests them. Why? Because he wants them to be faithful. But what else does the Lord do? He loves the wicked. Or I mean, he loves the righteous, not the wicked. He loves the righteous, rather. And so how do we get into God's love? We cast away wickedness. Because we want to be those who the Lord loves, not the ones who the Lord hates. Because of their actions, to clarify there again. Let's also next go to, think about this next idea as we go to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, we are reminded that God's wrath comes upon the unrighteous. The unrighteous are those who can expect God's wrath. If you look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 3, it says, For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, who is our life, shall appear, talking about the return, the judgment day when the Lord returns, right? Then shall, he, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, uh, uh, inordinate affection, evil con- con- concupiscence, or as the uh, New King James words it, uh, uncleanness or a passion or evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, or excuse me, evil desire. So uses that phrase for evil, con- whatever. Con- yeah, there in verse 5. So what does he tell us to do? Well, if you look at the word mortify, there's actually the idea of putting it to death. Put to death these members. What are they? Fornication and cleanness and so on. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming. If you look next at verse 6, For which sakes the the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. What do we do? We need to get rid of it. We need to, we need to put those things to death. So we have to face the judgment, the wrath of God. No unrepented sin goes unpunished. What do we do? We need to repent of it. Do you know that even in the Old Testament, that even those sins of ignorance, they had to still offer sacrifices for those things? Now, there are those out there today saying, well, you know, God's grace uh, will will cover those sins of, of ignorance. 
You know, it's interesting. You go to first the, uh, to books like First John, where we have there the idea of, of the blood of Christ continually cleansing uh, us. We have to remember that even though it's a continual cleansing, as it's described there, it's not an unconditional one. If we want to have part or take part in that cleansing that Christ offers us, we have to be those who repent of our sins. That's why when we uh, we when we realize we have made a mistake, we repent of those things. And there's nothing wrong to from at least from time to time, if not every day, to ask the Lord to forgive us of those sins which we are not aware of, those sins of ignorance. Because friends, ignorance is not, ignorance is not an excuse. Did you know that? Hosea four and verse six tells us, "For my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." It doesn't say my people are spared because of their lack of knowledge. He says, no, they're destroyed because of it. Ignorance is not an excuse. And we can cast away doubt when we're those who are not ignorant. You think about that phrase maybe you heard when you're growing up. You know better than that, or you've been taught better than that, right? Um, you know, just because, you know, our parents didn't tell us specifically not to do something, we knew already, based on everything else that we have been taught by our parents, that we cannot do it. So it's not really a sin, sin of ignorance, is it? You know, we may have doubts about various things in life, but we should not have doubts about God, His love, or His wrath. A humble, repentant heart will bring comfort and remove doubt. Let's make sure we do all we can to remove doubt from our life, because for the Christian, there should be no doubt in God. As I said before, there should be no doubt in Him about His love or about His wrath. That's it for our time together today. I hope you have enjoyed this Bible study. I hope it has been encouraging to you.